Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to The Other Hand, a very special edition of our podcast. I have a guest on today, and we're going to be talking with that guest about something brand new for The Other Hand. Normally, we do politics, finance, economics, but to extend the offering, and it is by way of a bit of an experiment, so I'll be grateful for any listener feedback on this, I'm going to be talking to a sports journalist a guy who writes for the Irish Times called Nathan Johns. Uh, You might recognise the surname. It's not entirely coincidental. Nathan, as I say, writes about sport of all kinds for the Irish Times. And when I talk to him, uh, lots of things come up. We have some great chats about sport. In the same way that Jim and I started this podcast, we just decided to record our chats that we would have about the stuff that our listeners are now very familiar with. I thought it might be fun to try and record one of my chats with Nathan and just see how it lands with everybody. Nathan, tell me a little bit about yourself. I am a sports journalist, as you said. Uh, I write for the Irish Times um, as the day job. Uh, I have covered sports, written audio uh, for quite a while, uh, ever since my student days, which, sorry, that makes it sound like the student days were such a long time ago. They weren't. Uh, I'm 24 um, but yes, I've been working at the Irish Times itself for about nearly a year and a half uh, now, covering predominantly uh, rugby and cricket. Um, I cover a lot of football or, or soccer, if that's your want, um, as well, particularly League of Ireland stuff. 
um and anything and everything really you know you end up dipping in, in and out of different sports boxing athletics all such like um but yes i am a i'm a sports journalist with no one singular focus uh, in my job title which means i i roam as i please and, and and tell interesting stories as i come across them great i'm a sports lover so are you but you're a professional sports writer a journalist for the irish times as i've already said now my perspective and i hope you don't think i'm being too rude about sports journalists here is that a lot of sports journalism, a lot of sports journalists, but by no means all, of course, is, is that the, the profession, the job, is often filled by slightly lazy um, people who write pieces, pad out interviews with cliches, and often, not always, is of no higher quality than you'd hear from a group of people three or four pints into a pub conversation. And I think that I get little insight into what actually makes a good talented athlete or team or a fantastic match or otherwise. And the sort of cliches I'm talking about is that you hear a team wins because they were better on the day or they got the rub of the green or they had better players or were better coached or scored a move straight from the training ground or the other team made two mistakes. Is my impression the pen portrait I sketched there fair? or not, in your opinion, um, if it is fair, has this situation arisen because sport really is very simple and because journalists either have to fill out a page or pad out an interview and it has to involve, therefore, vacuous words and cliches, or is it completely the opposite, which is far too complex for mere mortals like me to understand, or what? Can the complexities of sport be explained to somebody like me, the, the very interested layperson? I think it's all of the above um, is, the, is the very quick answer to that. On one hand, sport is remarkably simple. I was doing a a piece that, you know, kind of like a five things that Ireland need to do to beat France on the weekend, you know, kind of a tactical data piece that's that's going up on Thursday, Thursday evening. Um, so it'll obviously be up by the time this is listened to. And you do, you find yourself talking about things like the breakdown, discipline, set piece. You know, these are all for want of a better phrase, cliches, sport, you know, sport is simple and rugby is simple. If you have good, fast breakdown ball, if you don't give away too many penalties, if you have a strong functioning set piece and you win physical collisions, more often than not, you win the game. So that's, that's part of it. And so those same themes will continually come up. Another part of it is consuming media is changing and sports media has become a lot more instant for obvious reasons over the last 20 years in that the pressure these days when you're doing a match report is to file within 10 15 minutes of the final whistle and get it up there and just get the you know the bare bones of what happened uh, to an online audience for a from a written point of view as soon as possible now that's changing there are some sports websites you know the athletics brings to mind that that don't do basic match reports that just do two or three analysis pieces that are more you've got more time to breathe over them and to actually look at and think and watch back the match that you were that you were at so that's kind of coming back into it but at the end of the day it's a very instant profession for the most part particularly with in the newspaper game because you're either writing for an online audience or you're at a game at eight o'clock on a friday night and you have a very tight print deadline um but and the other part of that is i think as a as, as a as a as a society, we're a lot more visual and sporty than, we, than I think we have been in the past. And sport is a fundamentally very visual thing. So I think it is actually becoming harder 
to chat to to describe intricacies of sport that are quite complex because as simple as it is there are there are moments in sport that can be complex and if you haven't spent years watching it or playing it you, you don't instantly see them the way we're going these days and the way the fundamental nature of sport every, you, you rather, you'd rather watch it than listen to it is sometimes visual media are just easier for explaining things people who have whiteboards and can do the TV shows and draw X's and O's on screens. It, it is fundamentally easier to get that through to an audience, I think. So there is a real skill involved in conveying complexity of a visual medium to an increasingly visual audience uh, through through the written word. And I think that is something that is not made easier by having to file incredibly quick copy. Now, there are lots of people who do the, the Monday morning, two days later analysis piece that they do have time to think about it and you know, on an online platform, you can add videos to things, etc. And that's becoming more and more popular. And I think that's a good thing. So I wouldn't necessarily describe it as laziness all the time. I just think when all those pressures are on you, I think it can be easy to revert to type to meet a deadline, because at the end of the day, you're going to get into more trouble over missing a deadline, rather than actual content, I think more often than not. Now, it depends on the publication, of course, but that would be generally what I, what I witness going on around me. Okay. Do you think podcasting is a good medium for getting into those complexities? There are a lot of sports podcasts out there now. Uh, I find them of varying quality. But do you think it is a good medium for getting the message across, for getting the complexities across in, a, in an understandable way? What we're trying to do here, really? Yes and no. Well, I think we're doing it something a little bit different. We're doing it more of a you know bird's eye view of of. of of the field aren't we rather than actual well we haven't, fin- we, we haven't finished yet well yeah i'm sure we'll get there it, it is and it isn't I, I still stand and maybe this is just a personal thing maybe maybe it's my you know young attention span but you know how many people sit down and listen to a podcast for the sake of and that's that's their undivided attention most people are listening to it on the train to work they're walking the dog you know, they're cooking, there's other things going on. So if you're just trying to describe something, and, and, and I'm not talking about podcasts in general, I'm talking about sport, because again, it's very visual. If you want to look at why Josh van der Fleer scored a try on the weekend, you're looking at what happened, what line did he run? Who missed what tackle? What was the happened the play before? What happened at the breakdown that gave him fastball? All that, right? It's hard to visualize that unless you can see it. So I, I actually think the fun, the best platform with the best potential is television it's not it's it's completely underdone in 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 my opinion in terms of on the analysis side of things in rugby so podcasting it it can be for for general thematic stuff i think it can be excellent and for opinion and selection debates and things that don't require visual things for obvious reasons but I, i genuinely think sport of all things is has been the slowest to react to how the product in the actual product um is best consumed which is visually so presumably the hybrid thing that you point me to would be stuff on YouTube. Hundred percent, yeah, yeah, and and especially as an amateur, you know, you're not in or you're not in the RT studio, you don't have access to that, right? You can share your screen, you can. You, there's well, it's it's blown up as a YouTuber called Squidge Rugby who does exactly this, and um, for want of a better phrase, drawing X's and O's on a tactics board to explain what's happening and slowing down footage, and he releases twenty minute videos after every big match explaining what happened and he gets hundreds of thousands of views so there's clearly a market for it It, you have to get your medium right and that's certain he certainly has done that would he make money from that do you think not him specifically but that kind of thing is is that a is that a viable business model 
yeah youtubers youtube I, I don't know i'm not i'm not a youtuber myself but you, depending on your views and advertising money youtube can be relatively uh, lucrative yeah i've got a list of things that i want to talk about sort of random questions to tease some of these issues out um, perhaps going from the bird's eye view down into the weeds a little bit to mix our metaphors but both of us were at the game last weekend between wales and ireland wales were absolutely hammered particularly in the first half what do you think the main differences between the two teams were? And I want to refer you to a very specific conversation we had after the game in which you pointed out to me the ways in which over a number of years the two packs had either changed or not changed under their respective coaches. And the way, essentially, the Wales team was looking rather old and the Irish team wasn't. And I thought that was a very interesting point that I didn't see and I didn't read everything and I didn't watch every YouTube video or podcast I haven't seen anybody else make this point about the similarities and differences between the packs over a number of years. No, and at the risk of blowing my own trumpet, I haven't seen it made anywhere else either. I wasn't working at the game at the weekend, so I didn't. I didn't make it in it on the public forum. This is where you come into the simplicity aspect of what you said earlier on. I mean, fundamentally, in the first twenty minutes, Ireland were just just overpowered Wales um, physically more often than not with with forwards because. You know, they they lay the platform for everything, but you know every time Ireland had a line out in the first twenty minutes, they had Caelan Doris, their number eight in midfield, and he was breaking the gain line, which leads to quick ball, which leads to further gain line success, and that's a you know, a domino effect, so to speak. He was very efficient at that, uh, as was Josh van der Fleer. Uh, Conor Murray played quite well, considering uh, he was a late call up. Uh, one of his the big criticisms of him is that he's too slow getting the ball away from the breakdown and. If you've got forward carriers getting yourself over the gain line and supplying quick ball, the last thing you need is your scrum half slowing things up. He didn't do that on the weekend. He played quite well. And Ireland were just very clever. I mean, their first attack of the game, instead of attacking, James Lowe spotted space in behind and and pinned Wales in with a kick. Efficient kick chase forced a mistake and a line out in the 22 and Ireland scored from it. Wales' defence was certainly soft, um, as clever and powerful as Ireland were. You can't you can't be being beaten physically like that on every single carry. You can't be getting knocked back as a defense every single time. And that kind of ties into the second part of your question. The last time Ireland went to Cardiff and got physically beaten up, which is what Gatlin teams in the old days did, the the, the Welsh pack was relatively similar to what it is now. Justin Tiprick was still playing at um Alan Jones and Adam Beard, Tom Francis and Ken Owens. So there's five members of that pack, whereas Ireland had just three members of the same pack compared to 2019 and 2023. And it's not just the differences in that Ireland have kind of gotten rid of their older players and Wales haven't, although a lot of those players have now been dropped for this weekend, which I think proves the general point. But look, you look at who Ireland brought in, Dan Sheehan starting at hooker, very dynamic, very powerful Andrew Porter has moved across the other side of the scrum to start another dynamic, powerful athlete, Caelan Doris, we mentioned, and, and Josh van der Fleer, who's still still in career best form, 12 months on from his excellent run. So that's a big thing, the, the makeup of that forward pack compared to the two sides as they've grown over the last four years. It, it couldn't be more different, and you could see that in the opening exchanges. Wales just got bullied. That, that's interesting because you've also made the point to me several times recently that Ireland did have a reputation over a number of seasons of having uh, fantastic backs, fantastic attacking play, but the forwards could at times be bullied. That seems to have changed. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, it was towards the end of the Joe Schmidt era, wasn't it? The very it, it, It's a simplistic narrative, but to a point, 
rugby is simple, as as we said, and now the complex, there was a lot more going on behind that. But the end of the Joe Schmidt era, you think back to the first game of 2019, Six Nations, uh, the era of the famous Paddy Power adverts when England were taunted uh, ahead of that match and they came to Dublin and just completely threw a spanner in the works. And, and from there, Ireland kind of capitulated gradually. Well, if you can capitulate gradually, culminating in a pretty disastrous uh, World Cup defeat to Japan that that left them playing New Zealand in a quarter final, which at that time was 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 never going to end well. Um, and then it continued into the early Andy Farrell era. It was almost every time you played England, it just got physically beaten up. Um, and I can actually remember a match in Twickenham where they brought Caelan Doris off the bench in Ireland were 20, 15 points down, whatever it was. And his first impact was to make it break the game, like break a tackle. And you go, God, you haven't seen an Irish player do that against an English side for so long. So that was kind of the first sign that someone like him in this new generation of of power athletes and not so much power because they're all strong. You know, there's not that much difference in the strength of professional rugby players, but it's it's dynamism. It's it's the speed with that strength is the is the big thing. And 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 Ireland have maybe got lucky or or maybe just had some excellent youth coaching in the in, and as a result have got a generation of players that have all come through within the same four year span. Why didn't this fantastic team put more than 50 points, 50 plus points onto Wales last weekend? Probably a few things. Uh, Wales certainly came out and started winning a lot more collisions. They didn't allow themselves to be bullied as much after half time. In the second half. After half time. Yeah. They obviously, you know, I think the changing of talk there from from Gatland would have been pretty, pretty straightforward. Look, whatever about everything else that's going wrong. If you're getting knocked back phase after phase, again, simple sport, it, it ain't going well. I think it's human nature. I think this Ireland side is is very mentally astute under Andy Farrell. But at the same time, when you're 27-3 up at halftime, which I, I think that was the score, was either 27 or 24-3 at halftime, human nature is you're you're not going to you're not going to keep going. And at the same time, you just you just don't see those 50 point margins anymore even with Italy now like last time Ireland put 50 points on Italy but I, I suspect that won't happen this year France couldn't do that against Italy so in the six nations as a whole you just the gap between that teams between these teams just isn't that wide so as poor as Wales were for 20 minutes they were unsustainably poor it wasn't it wasn't going to to continue and, and Ireland's discipline let them down massively um in the 20 minutes or so after half time, I think Andrew Porter himself conceded six penalties, which is ridiculously high single penalty count. So, you know, Wales came up, came out fired up, and, and Ireland gave them plenty of easy avenues into the game. We talk about discipline. Dare I say it's one of those cliches that you see uh, a lot in, in match reports that uh, country A, country X's discipline let them down. I mean, how long is a piece of string? But how does that happen? Why does that happen? How can somebody suddenly be for a long stretch of the game, disciplined, and then all of a sudden it goes out of the window. Is that just purely psychological, or is it because they're under pressure, or is it a combination of all of the above? Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. 
Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I think more often than not, it's the pressure point. If you're going backwards, phase after phase, you're less likely to be onside. You're less likely to enter the rock from the right position. Um, you're also tired. It's much more tiring to defend than attack. So if you're and fatigue leads to, to higher penalty counts. Um, so it's it's more likely a pressure. And, and Wales, to be fair, did stress Ireland to a certain point. They didn't stress them enough to to get to you know they did get one try to mount a serious comeback. I mean the amount of times Ireland scrambled well to to relieve pressure inside their own twenty two was excellent. It's just they allowed Wales to get into that position by by being slightly poorer further up the pitch. One of the things that I rarely see these days, other than throwaway comments about the ref having a good game or a poor game, or he awarded lots of penalties, or he kept the game flowing, again, dare I say, cliches, uh, is some kind of analysis or just a report or judgment on the quality of the referee during a game. Rarely see that. And more generally, what is... Uh, the standard of refereeing these days is 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 the Six Nations ref are the Six Nations referees of a high standard? Northern Hemisphere Hemisphere refereeing versus Southern Hemisphere refereeing is something that I have encountered um, or, or observed all my life. I can remember the teams of the seventies always complaining that Southern refer- Southern Hemisphere referees refereed the game differently to Northern Hemisphere, and you'd always wonder uh, or ask the question: Cannot can somebody explain to me? how referees can have such a different approach to the same rule book. All of these questions come to mind, and I rarely see these sorts of issues teased out in, in sports journalism. Is that a fair comment? Massively. I mean, the God's honest truth is the only people who analyse referees properly are referees themselves. The stand, people can bitch and moan about refereeing, and, and they always will. It's, it's part of the game. It's human nature. It's all sport. But, you know, the standard of refereeing, especially in rugby, has probably never been higher because referees are under as much scrutiny and self-analysis by World Rugby's officiating board or whatever you want to call them than ever. Because the same way a team rocks up on a Monday morning and does their excruciating video analysis of all the stuff they've done wrong, referees do exactly the same thing, especially at international level. And, you know, as much as rugby players are all trying to get selected for a World Cup next year, as are referees, there's a massive oversubscription of international referees and only so many of them go to France next, uh, next year, next season. It's now. It's not next year anymore, as if we're in 2023 uh, for that World Cup. So the answer to that question is the ref- standard refereeing is, is, has never been higher in terms of getting things right. The issues people have are with length of time of TMO interactions, because obviously the TMO leads to more correct decisions, but more interventions means longer time. Um, referees getting things right can just be calling a, a penalty at every single breakdown. It feels like, and, and I think people have started to have conversations now around well is that what we want do we do do we want every single infraction penalized or do we just want the most glaring ones or the ones that influence games by leading to scores or whatever but that's impossible to quantify most of the time journalists themselves don't sit down and analyze referees and why not not? time i mean if you're if you're an irish rugby journalist you've got to watch four provinces and the irish team and for example you ask why do we not why do we people not explain the difference between the hemispheres refereeing is because you know 
no journalist has the time on his his or her hands to watch four provinces every weekend and then stay up late or get up early to watch domestic New Zealand rugby and figure out they can watch it in their spare time but they're they're not going back then to look at every refereeing decision so part of it is that um, whereas the referees themselves or the players do extensive refereeing analysis the players on a Monday or Tuesday morning will sit there and say this guy's refereeing us this is what he's hot on this referee will warn you before penalising you for something this referee won't so you can get away with a little bit more than him than you can with him Players do all that 100%. Now, some people have a basic understanding. Like, for example, I heard during the week somebody say the referee for the French-Italy game doesn't warn you. If you put your hands in the ruck and you shouldn't be there, he'll just blow up, he'll just ping you. Whereas another referee will say, give you the opportunity to let the ball go before. So some people, there are some nuances to that that every now and then you hear said on a podcast or something. But for the most part, no, um, we don't do that. But do you, can you see how that would frustrate the amateur uh, watcher of the game like me that, that, that the rules allow that level of interpretation uh, that can vary from individual referee to individual referee and it cannot be beyond the wit of man or woman to design a set of rules that are less open to interpretation so that everybody can understand what is, what is going on and why referee A has made the decision which is similar to referee B but you're saying can often be very different depending on the personality involved should the rules be clearer and more prescriptive? The rules are very clear, I think, or, or laws, as, laws as they're called in rugby, as, as, as I should say, rather than rules. Apparently, that's an important distinction to make amongst the inner circles of rugby. I don't think it's the laws themselves that are open to, to interpretation. It's what the manifestation is on, on a rugby pitch. I mean, depending on a certain camera angle that you look at, a player can come in from the side of a ruck or he can come in through the through the back legally. Um, and that's the same with the referee's position. A referee can be, you know, 45 degrees from a ruck and it sees and it looks like somebody's entered a side. And whereas if he's right beside it, he's he's more. And that and that's that's not interpretation. That's just being in the right place at the right time, which is something that they also referees themselves work a lot, a lot on. So that's just one example. Um, so I don't think the laws themselves are actually that unclear. You know, things like tacklers releasing before playing the ball, don't play the ball on the, on the floor, the, ta- the, the tacklee has to release. Those things like that are all pretty basic fundamental obvious things just how they look and how certain aspects of it look depending on where you're looking at it can can vary and and the thing that also can vary is the length of time or like i said like i hinted at earlier whether you instantly penalize someone or give them half a second to to fix their their um their infringement and referees nowadays are starting to i think more giving players half a second because if they can avoid giving away a penalty and let the game flow, like so to speak, they will, for the most part. Some don't, but most do. In terms of big penalties, I can hear talking heads like, I think I heard Brian O'Driscoll say it the other day, oh, a different referee, that would have been a red, not a yellow. Now that's an interpretation, isn't it? That's, too, that's him explicitly saying that different referees faced with the same set of circumstances would make different decisions. So that's that's the high tackle law, pretty much, because... A huge part of the high tackle law is the force that someone's hit with. And if it's high force or high degree of danger or low degree of danger is what you hear referees saying in their interactions with with TMOs. And I think that that's where the gray area is because that's unquantifiable. Something like the breakdown, are somebody's hands touching the floor or not before he touches the ball? That's quantifiable. You can you know, you might not be able to see it and therefore you get the decision wrong. But that's not an interpretation. That's quantifiable. But what is a high degree of force? You know, a glancing blow can still lead to a big degree of force, whereas 
a big, you know, what they call an absorbing tackle can look bad, but it can be, there's, that's, that's the one area that, that they have to try and clear up. I don't know how they do it and nobody does because if they did know how to, how to clear that up and make that less gray, they would have done it by now. But yeah, they've, they've added in language into those laws and on and, and the high tackles specifically and degrees of force specifically, that is, that's unquantifiable and causes confusion. Tell me in two minutes or less why Welsh rugby is in such trouble. Well, if the short answer is it's they haven't done what the IRFU have done and kind of professionalized the the high performance side of things. Well, they have. No, that's 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 not fair. The high performance aspect of Welsh rugby is obviously very professional. They'd have a high performance someone who looks after that, who the, the David Nusafora figure and all that. But the people who he responds to are all very much still beholden to the amateur clubs that uh, once dominated Welsh rugby, you know, Pontypridd, Neath, all these. Now, I'm not saying that those individual clubs are to blame or anything, but those are just the, the names of the amateur era that people will remember. Um, and those club types of clubs, not necessarily those ones specifically, still have a very domineering presence in the running of Welsh rugby, whereas Irish rugby has kind of separated that out. And it's all about the provinces those professional entities and as a result the professional entities in Wales because their interests aren't represented as well on the upper echelons um, have suffered massively that's the rugby playing side of things I mean the the rampant misogyny and racism that's come to light in recent weeks is a is another matter altogether and you know if, if that that alone is reason to tear it all up and start again let alone the, the rugby side of things okay this weekend we've got another Six Nations weekend the Irish team has been announced I believe it has with some injuries uh, one from last week, Dan Sheehan. Another player has done a hammy. Uh, I think from last week, Keane Healy and Jameson Gibson Park both did hamstrings as well. So I don't know. There's something in the there's something in the high performance centre turf up in Abbottstown that's making all these players pull hamstrings. I don't know. But... Well, a hundred years ago, when I played a little bit of rugby, it was always called the fit man's injury. It was always as a result of uh, the, the fittest guys on the team seemed to pull their hamstrings. And it might be folklore or mythology, but it was also somebody would always mutter, oh, he didn't warm up properly. Is there anything to that? Is, is there, do you suspect anything's going on as a result of this spate of hamstring injuries? Oh, God, that's beyond my expertise, sadly. Um, you need to speak to a physiotherapist. You need to speak to a physiotherapist, probably. Uh, it's, it's worth asking the question because uh, these things can happen. Freak, athletes pull hamstrings all the time. So four, I think it's been four in the space of two weeks, isn't it? You know, it might look bad, but it's maybe it's nothing. But um, could be pure coincidence. Could be, but at this, if if it keeps going, then it's probably worth something looking at. Forecast for Ireland, France. Yeah, it's tricky. I don't think France would be anywhere near as poor as they were against Italy. But even though they're poor against Italy, they they're just clinical. Italy gave them entry points into the game. Ireland won't give them those entry points into the game. It's it's tricky. I, I think France. I, I'd always back the slightly more physical side when the skill level of both sides is is quite comparable and I think that's the case here um, I think Ireland do like to play a little bit more with their attacking structures marginally so but France are just more powerful um, what happened last year I was again this piece that I wrote I was looking at some stats and I think something like 60% of French carries in the first half in Paris last year broke the gain line whereas 20% of Irish carries did I can't remember the exact numbers but something like that so that just gives you a, an idea of what can happen if you start slowly and are not up to the physical challenge of the game? I guess that's one of those areas where the, the concept is very simple, but maybe once you start introducing stats, it gets a little bit more complex. But that kind of paints a picture as to why just being big and strong and dynamic and not letting guys run you over is, is quite important because Ireland were 
blown away pretty early in, in, in that match. I don't think that will happen. Since then, Ireland have developed into a team that starts very fast. Um, and if that happens, they, they could be in business. But I was worried because the French bench really impacted the game against Italy. One player in particular, the big second row, Tava Fenua, threw the try-scoring offload and then won a penalty on the break, at the breakdown to win the game. And that's just a microcosm of the impact that their bench can have. But you, all of a sudden, I think the fact that now Sheehan is injured and Rob Herring starts, that means Ronan Keller has to come back. And he's much more dynamic than, than Rob Herring. So all of a sudden, the Irish bench is actually quite dynamic and can have a big impact physically as well. Ian Henderson, Jack Conan, Bundiaki, Tom O'Toole and, and Kelleher. So it, it could be interesting. I, I think it, the end game, I would have thought the end game suited France. But now that Ireland have named that team, I think the end game is quite similar. So if Ireland can start well, they, they have a decent chance. But I always are on the side of the bigger sides when the skill levels are, are the same. We're running out of time and there's a big topic that I wanted to at least touch on with you today. Maybe we'll leave a a more in-depth discussion of it to another one of these chats. But as part of your work at the Irish Times, you've covered a lot of uh, cricket as well as rugby and in particular women's cricket and also women's rugby. Um, It seems that uh, through your work and work of lots of other journalists that women's sport is being covered better than it has been. Would you agree with that? And I would guess that you think there's much further to go. But women's sport really is a much bigger deal than it used to be, um, at least in the media. Is that fair? Yeah, it's it's nowhere. It's still nowhere. It's still not even comparable to the to the male counterpart. Uh, I've done bits and bobs. I've done bits and bobs of everything. Really, I don't have any singular focus uh, on men, men or women. To be perfectly honest with you, I think it'll take a long time before you get the day to day coverage of of women's sport. Like for example. Every newspaper in the country in Ireland will cover, will take Premier League reports of men from, from England, whereas, you know, they won't really take women's Premier League reports unless there's an Irish player playing, if Katie McKay is playing for Arsenal or, or, or such like. So the day-to-day stuff is still lagging massively. I think the feature writing is is excellent because people make more of an attempt to kind of explore the barriers that a lot of women face and, and that, that can make for good storytelling. And I think more and more people are going down that avenue. So that's improved, uh, but the the, day, the more day to day stuff is you know on, on the week on a weekend sports pages you see far more of Division One GAA covered for men than you do for women. Um, that that's just a just a fact, and that will probably take a bit of time. And that's and that's partly because of interest and partly because of resources. If you've got limited resources and you got to make a choice, you're going to pick the men's game because there's more interest. That's the financial aspect. You've elected to cover a women's cricket tournament that starts soon. Is that right? Yeah, I have next and Monday. Ireland. Where are you going? Down to South Africa. Yeah, I'll, I'll do a few bits and bobs and and I keep an eye on Ireland while I'm down there. Fantastic. Okay, Nathan, thanks very much. That's been absolutely brilliant. And as I said to everyone, please uh, give us some feedback as to how you think this fits in with the broader offering of the other hand. But many thanks to Nathan. Thank you. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify and other good podcast platforms. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. 
Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.